This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS Radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there, too. Welcome to Hits Radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today, I have a friend of mine. I've known him for a long time out of uh, uh, the Florida area. Steve Hurth is here, and he's from the Polk County Sheriff's Office, and great deal of knowledge about canine. Um, he's taught for us a few times at Hits. Uh, real well-versed in, in all things dog, uh, both as a handler and as a supervisor. So Steve's done some uh, kind of innovative things uh, when he was a supervisor of a, of a pretty good-sized unit. So I thought it'd be fun to bring him on here today and uh, just have him throw out a few ideas of some of the, the programs that uh, his agency uses and see if it's a, a fit for your agency. So without further ado, uh, Steve, how are you doing today? Hey, good, Jeff. I appreciate you having me. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. I know you, uh, I think you work overnights, don't you? So I appreciate you yes, sir. adjusting your sleep schedule for this. So I appreciate that. Um, can you go ahead and just uh, give our listeners, a, you know, your background? Sure. So uh, I was a dual purpose canine handler for 10 years um, at the sheriff's office here in uh, Lakeland, Florida. And uh, after that 10 years, I transferred into a couple detective uh, positions to get uh, experience for promotion. And I returned back to the canine unit in about 2017 and spent uh, two and a half years there, there as the uh, canine unit supervisor. A little bit of background about our uh, unit of our agency. We are a mid-sized law enforcement agency. We have about 750 deputies or so, and we currently have um, about 24 canine teams. Uh, when I started this um, program of the of the changes we made, uh, we had 20 dual-purpose canine teams. We had two bloodhounds, and we had about four single-purpose narcotics dogs. And the so the twenty were single purpose patrol dogs. They not you didn't have any dual purpose dogs at the time. Yeah, they were actually dual purpose. We had uh, I believe four or five uh, explosives and patrol canine teams, and then we had the rest were narcotics and patrol canine teams. And we realized very quickly that uh, with growing times, uh, we needed some additional bloodhounds to help cover the of our county. Our county is the, I believe, the third largest in the state of Florida land-wise, uh, and we have a lot of need for bloodhounds. Uh, we have a lot of deployments. We have missing people we track, misdemeanors. Um, we, we try to avoid, tried to avoid using the patrol dogs to track those that um, we didn't want to engage, uh, whether inadvertently or on purpose on the street. Our, our demand for the bloodhounds was going way up and our supply was unfortunately going way down. Yeah. So just backing up a little bit, um, for people who maybe aren't familiar, Florida is a very, very, uh, police dog friendly state. I mean, there's every time I go down there, um, the numbers always kind of amaze me. So, uh, here, if, if in, in the state, in Colorado, like our neighboring agency, they have about, uh, 700 cops. Um, and I think they're at six, six dogs. So, uh, 750 cops and 20 or 25 dogs. That's a that's a pretty good sized unit compared to the size of of agency. It is. Is that kind of common down in your area? Those kind of numbers, or were you a little bit bigger? 
Yeah, we actually have a, a fairly large canine unit. It's it's one of the largest in the state of Florida uh, for law enforcement agencies. And I think that's just because we've had quite a bit of success throughout the years. So um, they uh, it kind of increased our demand for canine services. And I think they decided it was wise to increase our canine unit um, for our resources. And when, when I started canine, we had 16 patrol dog teams. So throughout the years, uh, probably from the last um, I'd say about 15 years, we've added four patrol dog positions, which has obviously helped out considerably. Sure. And are you a dedicated canine unit or do you answer calls also? Or I guess all canines answer calls, but are you assigned calls or is it just straight canine? No, we're a dedicated canine unit. Um, the handlers have the option of responding to whatever call they feel is necessary. Uh, typically, they don't take a primary assignment for a report writing call. They, they have the option to do that if they'd like, but we try to keep them available to respond to canine requests. We also uh, typically self-dispatch to backup calls, alarm calls, suspicious people, things that we think the dog might be of help for. And overall, even with that number of dogs in the size of your agency, all those teams stay pretty busy, don't they? Oh, yeah, very, very much so. They, it's rare to find a canine unit sitting still. <laughs> yeah, I, I know your county, and I know it, it, it uh, has has all the opportunities there for, for if you want to stay busy, I'm sure. It does. Sure. So, um, you had all the dogs and then how many bloodhounds did you have originally that you said were, were getting stretched kind of thin? So at the time, uh, initially we only had one bloodhound when we first adopted the bloodhound, um, program in, in recent times, at least we only had one dog. Uh, we've received a lot of success with that dog and we were able to add on a second one. So at the time we had two bloodhounds, um, they were dedicated as only bloodhound handlers. However, organizationally, they were assigned um, in kind of a weird fashion. Throughout the years, their their assignment um, kind of switched around. Sometimes they were patrol deputies with bloodhounds, and sometimes they were assigned to our proactive uh, units with bloodhounds. And we found that really no matter where they were assigned, they had ancillary duties that were causing the bloodhounds success to suffer. Um, so they weren't even assigned to the canine unit. They weren't even supervised by a canine supervisor uh, full time. They were only overseen by a canine supervisor for dog purposes. And obviously that wasn't the best setup uh, imaginable. So we started trying to look for a solution to that. And were they able to train with the other patrol dogs or were they, was that all separate also? Uh, well, depending on when you talk about initially, they had the um, same training days as uh, our patrol dog teams. And then throughout the years and the competing needs of that particular deputy or officer, uh, different supervisors would allow different things. And eventually we got down to the point where they were allowed uh, four hours of training uh, every two weeks, eight hours total a month, which um, by our standards and, and what we believe in, that was nowhere near enough. Sure. Training. So uh, maybe you can outline then when you got as a supervisor, that's what you inherited, right? Right. That's what I inherited. Um, I had kind of coming in, taking all, uh, taking over from the previous supervisor um, I had some amazing bloodhound handlers that were just phenomenal cops. They were super motivated. They always wanted to go out and catch a bad guy. 
and they were willing to put up with the organizational challenges of where they were assigned. And they did a really good job with their training and, and making do with what they had um, by putting in some extra personal time. But I quickly found out they were burning out and were, um, their morale was getting very low because when they weren't working, they were on call every other week. So you could, we, it was not uncommon for the bloodhounds to be called out nightly, if not multiple times a night. And unfortunately, most of the time they were getting called out to losing circumstances where we knew good and well at the onset that we weren't going to be able to find the person. Every single factor was stacked against us, uh, but the patrol supervisors didn't understand. They didn't know what they were looking at. They weren't listening to us. So the handlers were getting very upset about getting continuously called out, continued negatives for the dog all the time and never had a really good chance to catch uh, people. Or it was very rare that they had a really winning uh, scenario there. And those call-outs were both, you said, for misdemeanors and then also just lost people? and Right. And and when it, became an, when it was an on-call situation and they had to be called out in the middle of the night, the patrol supervisors weren't calling them out for the misdemeanors because they didn't want to spend the money for the call-out uh, for something that, you know, could be considered a, a more minor crime. Um, and then you had the missing people, and in order to try to save money or, or save resources, they would take a bunch of other steps before they would call the hound out. So when the hound got there, he was already behind the eight ball, and, and he had already had even more time uh, delay from the time the person left. So we, uh, we tried to, I looked at it and, and decided we needed to, try to find a way to improve the conditions, not only for the handlers and the dogs, but also for the customers who were calling for us, you know, patrol, other agencies uh, frequently called us. We're the only bloodhound agency inside the county uh, with the exception of the Florida Department of Corrections. But unfortunately, they didn't have a lot of advertisements. So a lot of people didn't know they were there and didn't know to call them. Uh, so we were getting requests from all over our county, uh, other agencies within our county, other counties that border us that don't have bloodhound teams. Uh, so we were getting a lot, of, a lot of calls. We tried to find a way to improve not only the unit, but our response, improve our tracking, um, try to distribute the workload a little bit better to keep the handlers a little happier. And also when we, we found out, I found out when, when I looked at the fact that we had to replace a dog I had a handler down and basically of no use to patrol, of no use to actual street um, applications because he was down or she was down in a canine school and was basically of no help until he got the dog trained and back out on the road and then faced, you know, the issues of when is the dog going to be done? We need to hurry this along. We need coverage. So then the dog training from time to time would get hurried and, it wasn't done as well as it could be. So we're trying to find ways through all that. At the same time, we're trying to make a name for ourselves in the canine industry. We're trying to find uh, innovative solutions to problems that were out there that other people maybe had thought of in the past or tried in the past with various success. And we were willing to take a chance um, and see what we could do by thinking outside the box a little bit. That's when we came up with the, the idea of maybe adding a, 
a bloodhound to some patrol dog, current patrol dog teams, and kind of making them a two-dog unit at that point. How was that received uh, when you first talked to the patrol dog handlers? What did they think of that idea? Um, so the handlers really had no um, really no concept. They had never really heard of such a thing, even though we had a couple of neighboring agencies, at least one neighboring agency that had done it throughout the years. And I, I just think they hadn't had a lot of our handlers, had not had a lot of exposure to handlers from outside agencies. And the networking really wasn't there. I was fortunate when I got into the role as the canine supervisor. I had been in canine for years. I had gone to HITS. I had gone become a part of uh, the HITS company and, and trying to teach classes and attend classes. And so I had a lot of outreach to other agencies and see how they were doing things. And when I heard about this from other agencies, I thought it was a really good idea and I thought it was something uh, worthwhile to try. So Fortunately, the handlers, uh, they kind of uh, followed me blindly. They listened to me. They uh, considered all the pros and cons. And as a whole, we decided that, especially amongst the, the bloodhound handlers, were extremely excited about it because it was going to reduce some of their call-out time and improve some stuff. So I think it was it was fairly well accepted, and then we had to approach the agency with it. So were you going to absorb the bloodhound handlers into your, your unit also? Was that right. Plan? So Yep. So we had a really um, awesome timing scenario come up in which two patrol dog handlers had left the unit. So we had two vacancies in a patrol dog capacity, dual purpose, and they took their dogs uh, with them when they retired or when they left the unit, the dogs retired. So we had two vacancies for dual purpose patrol dogs. And then we happened to have conveniently enough two bloodhound positions. So uh, what we did, we, kind of tossed around some ideas and decided it would be best to approach our agency and say, we would like to eliminate the two bloodhound positions themselves and then absorb those uh, deputies and their bloodhounds into our two vacancies. So we actually, we actually saved the agency um, about $160,000 a year repeating as long as they wanted it. Um, by eliminating two positions, but keeping the people and keeping their uh, duties that they were providing the agency. So we uh, we approached our staff with that um, all the way up our chain of command. We had to do some cost analysis and and some real life pros and cons of it, and try to approach it uh, honestly and openly, uh, with an open mind, both from the perspective um, of the canine unit as well as the agency. And it was very well received. We had some back and forth uh, along the way, and eventually they agreed to it, and that's where it started. So at the beginning, you absorbed those two uh, handlers. I assumed you went and got them patrol dogs. And then how many of the patrol dog handlers, uh, did they were they volu- did they volunteer? Were they voluntold? Or did you kind of pick some of the stronger handlers? And how many did you, uh, how many did you assign bloodhounds to at the beginning? Sure. So we had... Um, the two initially, like you said, and then we added four more on top of that. We kind of played with the numbers a little bit throughout the process, and uh, we had a an amazing opportunity. Uh, we met a lady named Linda Bowles from Finding Friends Bloodhounds. She runs a bloodhound um, company, and she typically donated uh, bloodhounds to law enforcement agencies or search and rescue type functions and 
Uh, I don't even remember how. I think I, I think through networking, we got in contact with Linda. We ran our idea past her, uh, told her our concerns and and how we thought the the agency and the and the canine and law enforcement profession were gonna were gonna succeed and improve from our ideas. And she agreed to actually donate four bloodhounds to us. Um, and then she also donated um, two weeks of training for each bloodhound team. And she has a longtime bloodhound person, and, and they take some special considerations when you have those hounds. And we also had the experience of a bloodhound trainer or two in our agency. So in addition to the training that Linda provided us, we also put them through um, 160 additional hours of tracking training once they got done with Linda, once they were assigned and they came back to our county. Uh, then we went ahead and assigned them to a tracking school. Also, just to say that we did things our way as well as um, with some open mind towards somebody else's training methods. So uh, I can't say enough for how much Linda helped us out with that. She saved us um, probably about $40,000 um, just in the cost of the dogs alone. And then her time and effort and her training was probably at least another twenty to $40,000. That's fantastic. Find these partners that that'll come and help us like that. That's fantastic. It was great. And without the networking um, of other law enforcement agencies and canine units, we would have never learned about Linda probably. And we would have ended up spending some money uh, on these, these bloodhounds, which would have been worth it, but it was a, a little sweet in the pot a little bit for us. Um, and we also had the opportunity to get basically bloodhound pups. They were um, under a year old when we got them. So we had a lot of socialization to do with them. We had a lot of um, initial puppy problems like everybody has. And we really had to concentrate our training and take it slow and make sure the dogs were being exposed to all the different environments and scenarios. And we eventually got them on board. It's still a work in progress. They're still um, learning. And like any canine position, you'll never be done training. But we've had some pretty good successes with them so far. So let's go, let's talk about the, the four uh, veteran handlers. Um, I assume you said they were all kind of picked those four. Did, were they the ones who stepped up and wanted it? Or did you kind of look and say, these are the, this is, this is the best match based on their abilities or how did that happen? Yep. So I reached out to the handlers and asked for volunteers. Um, we had one patrol dog handler who was fairly new to being a patrol dog handler. However, he had experience working at Hound for several years. He was the first one I went to and I said, hey, look, I, I kind of need a partner in this and I really need your um, advice and your experience and, and kind of helping guide this because I had no bloodhound experience. I had never worked a hound. I would tracked with him a few times, but he was my go-to guy. And so we came up with kind of a plan of what we wanted to do. And then we asked for additional volunteers for the other three positions. And luckily I had at least three, if not more volunteers. And then we just, I kind of went through the volunteers' names and decided, you know, based on how hard they work, how hard they train, their self-starters, their self-motivators, and I knew they were going to put in the extra work because there was a little extra work to it that was involved. And, you know, unfortunately, I can't pay them bonuses, and there's not a lot I can do about raising their pay, but uh, we definitely went ahead and tried to do everything we could to make it as um, as attractive as possible for them. And and basically, we just pick from a group of volunteers. So, and I know your agency uh, does a lot of tracking and uh, 
so they were the these handlers have already done quite a bit of tracking. Did you find it's pretty much a similar skill set to tracking with a shepherd or a Malinois compared to the bloodhound, or did they kind of have to change some of their mindset with a different dog? Uh, so the unique thing about our tracking training is we kind of developed our tracking training based on the tracking training of bloodhounds and single purpose tracking dogs. So we had kind of already been doing exactly what the bloodhound required for our patrol dog teams. So it wasn't a completely foreign concept to us. They were kind of already on board um, with what was required for it. And uh, they adapted very easily to it. There was no issues. We had to just take our time with it, go a little bit slower than normal. And they had to understand the difference um, in the motivations of the bloodhounds track versus the motivations of the patrol dogs track. So it was definitely a learning curve, but our training methods were solid. And I think that's what got us through. Good. Good. Yeah. Sounds like a good foundation. Did you have to retrofit some cars or did you already have SUVs or how did you handle that part of it? Yeah, so we had uh, currently had Ford Explorers. Uh, I think there were 2017 Ford Explorers and there was our first uh, SUV for the agency. We had used cars um, for as long as I could remember. And so we had the explorers and we looked into how we could retrofit them, like you said, for the dogs. And we decided uh, when I was training my second dog, I, I trained him from a puppy and our fleet maintenance was able to um, construct a very thin piece of aluminum that they were able to mount in my kennel. And I could keep my uh, current dog on one side and the puppy on the other and bring him to work and get a lot of training done as it worked during my downtime. So we took that exact same concept, went back to fleet with it, and told them what we needed and what our um, what our concerns were and, and what we needed it for. And they were able to come up with another uh, aluminum kennel divider uh, for six dogs or six vehicles. It cost us about $250 total, um, which was was pocket change compared to how much it cost if we tried to um, buy a specific uh, kennel built for that. So really, at that point, your costs have been almost nothing because you got the a lot of the training was donated. Obviously, there's cost for the hourly time of the handlers out training, but the dogs uh, were donated, so you've got some additional vet bills and some additional food. But you've almost you know doubled the capability of of you know part of your unit for very very little money. It sounds like. Yeah, that's it. We did some cost analysis to it. Um, I took some notes here to to go over it and. We actually spent um, only an additional $1,300 annually in vet care total for all the dogs. So our vet costs went from about $900 a year to $2,200 a year, which wasn't a bad increase. Uh, we had about $550 in food costs um, annually. That went up by about $900. We had the new kennel dividers, and then we had about $800 in additional equipment for the dogs with leashes and harnesses and bowls and uh, whatever else you come up with. We also had to put a new uh, second kennel, which I think we had enough. We didn't have to buy any. We had some spares. We put up a second kennel at the handler's houses. Um, so they had a, a kennel for their patrol dog, and they had a kennel for their uh, bloodhound. And to in total, after spending that small amount of money, uh, we saved the agency about $250,000 a year total between all the costs. So a uh, very, very little expenditure to get a whole bunch of cost savings. 
And those numbers you just read, those are per per team, right? So uh, those, that's total annually. So uh, we we went from nine hundred to thirteen hundred for vet care for all nine hundred dollars for all of the dogs in your agency. For all, yeah, for all the dogs, we wow. we uh, we're very fortunate um, to have some really good um, uh, contacts in the county that were able to help us out there. Sure. Yeah. Cause that seems like, I think, you know, we, we spend that, we can spend that on one dog. It seems like, so that's, that's really a good, a good uh, setup you have there. Um, you did mention pay. Did you do anything about uh, dog care for, for having two handlers? Yep. I, two was, dogs, uh, very, I was very fortunate. I was supported by staff through this and uh, we kind of started it and, uh, and what we did was we doubled their Garcia pay. Uh, they were getting 30 minutes a day uh, per a 28-day uh, pay period. And what that the way we were doing that was we were flexing them off an hour a day um, on their normal shift. So we worked 14 days a month, and they were going home at 5 instead of 6. Well, once they got the dual teams, then we had an extra hour of canine care we we're going to have to provide them. And we knew the agency wasn't going to be big on paying it. So what we did was we have usually have at least three dog teams out in the County at all times, whether they be patrol dogs or, or the uh, bloodhound and patrol dog combo. So we decided to let the bloodhound teams come into work an hour late and go home an hour early. That way, they were there for the busiest hours in the afternoon, like they normally were. And the agency wasn't seeing a, a reduction in service during that time. Yeah. That seems like a pretty fair, fair way. And again, you're not costing the agency any extra money doing that. So it seems like a fair way for everybody. Yeah. And typically the, you know, the first, first hour of work, um, you're usually spending cleaning out your, your vehicle and getting your paperwork together anyways. And, our handlers were great in that they would turn on their radios and monitor their radios from the time they would normally come out to work. And if something popped off and they really needed them, they'd be the first ones to jump up and volunteer. And then they were supported by me, by the, by the agency, where if they did come out early to go try to catch somebody and, and make us look better, then we would give them that hour back later. And uh, we just schedule a different time for them. That sounds like a real fair way to do it. So do you, um, you said you have some notes. I imagine you probably have some stats at the end of that first year as to what you guys have done. Yeah, I haven't put together the total um, deployments yet for the program um, in the first year. All I can say is we had, initially we had 133 deployments in 2017, and that was between um, two dog teams, two handlers. Um, the call out, that we had was thousands of dollars between two different handlers. I had one handler that made about $9,000 in 252 hours of call out. And the other handler made about $6,700 in 190 hours of call out. So the total for 2017, our call outs was over $15,000 uh, for all the deployment. So I can tell you from um, listening and seeing and, and seeing what the handlers are doing now, and also being a patrol supervisor now, I'm the one that's actually requesting the bloodhounds. It's kind of had a funny turnaround. Uh, and I'm getting an immediate response from the canine, from the bloodhound teams, where typically I would have been calling them out from home 
and it would have been an hour plus before they got there. Now I'm able to free up my resources because the dog team is getting there, getting on the ground, getting done, and then we can move on to something else. Yeah, and of course, then that goes in hand in hand. I'm sure their success is much higher now when they're timely on the call. Very much so. And, and you know, we looked at it from a perspective of um, with bloodhounds, they're out there tracking the people that we really, really, really need to find, the innocent people typically. And if we had one catch, we were willing to take that as opposed to the 21 catches we had before. If one of those innocent people got found that wouldn't have gotten found without the hounds, uh, we were willing to accept that and continue improving until we got better. Sure, sure. So in that time after that, has that program expanded anymore yet, or are you still uh, still at the same numbers? Uh, we're still at the same numbers. They've There's been some talk about possibly adding two more uh, that would help things out organizationally because the way we, we're organized, we have um, eight handlers assigned to a rotation. I'm sorry, 10 handlers assigned to a rotation. So with time off right now, um, vacations, sick time, what have you, uh, we have three bloodhound teams per rotation. We have two rotations. So um, if one goes down for some reason or is out on vacation, we only have two. And we'd like to keep it more towards three or four. So there's that many calls for service for them to go to. And we just like to make sure we have enough resources to cover it. Yeah, it sounds like a great setup. And then now on the training days, it's probably more integrated. So you're probably getting more of a, I guess, a, a team when you have, if, if a guy's already assigned to the canine unit, when he gets his bloodhound out, the other dog handlers are there and you guys are all working together to make that bloodhound better as opposed to it sound like these other guys were kind of on an island before and probably trying to train in a smaller group and not having the resources that you have. Yeah, that's exactly the way it was. And, and when you track the same person over and over again, um, there are some theories out there that, you know, the dog learns to track that person and might have some difficulty tracking different people. So we were able to add our decoys exponentially. We also use the volunteers uh, from patrol that would come out and have an interest in canine. We'd have them attend our training days and they would get to run tracks for the hounds. Um, it reduced our downtime at training, at least for the handlers that had the two dogs, because instead of sitting around waiting for their turn with their patrol dog, they could take their turn and then they could take their bloodhound out and run a track. And by the time they got back, they'd have some more time to do something with their patrol dogs. So, uh, we did have some initial training concerns. Um, they weren't really negative per se, but it was something that we had to take into consideration that in the state of Florida, we have a state mandated uh, 480 hour patrol school for new handlers. If you're an experienced handler, previous handler, uh, maybe you left canine and came back or switched agencies, then you have to do a minimum of 80 hours patrol dog training. You don't have to do the full 480, but that 480 hours is a lot of time. So we considered the fact of, you know, what are we going to do with a bloodhound off the street for 480 hours when they have to replace their patrol dog? And then we just got to thinking about it and said, there's no reason why we can't do that patrol school while they're still providing the services of their bloodhound team. So it required a little um, schedule shifting and, and some creative scheduling, um, but we were able to reduce that downtime while we still had to get the schools going. We had a mandatory 200-hour detection school that was mandated by our agency. The state doesn't have a uh, mandated any hours of detection whatsoever. They don't get involved in that. 
And then we also had an agency mandated 200 hour tracking school that we had to put on. So all of our patrol dog teams, dual purpose teams go through 880 hours training and our bloodhound or single purpose uh, dog teams go through 200 hours each. So we just tried to do as much as we could uh, with that person while they were going through the school. Sure. And like you say, they can, they're still, they're still an asset. If uh, one dog is in training, they can go use the other dog, you know, if, if it's needed. So it seems like a good setup. Now the, the handlers, uh, you've, you're into the program a little ways. So the four handlers that started with the, so you ended up having, you have six, six teams now that have two dogs. Is that right? What's the feedback from those handlers? Are, are they all pretty happy with the setup and are there more handlers now that when it opens up that would want to probably jump on the program too? So the, um, some of the concerns from the handlers were that they felt like they weren't getting enough time to train. So they are with two dogs. So what they're doing is trying to um, arrange a second training day in which they can do just bloodhound training um, to kind of increase those hours. And we're still waiting on the final answer on that. Um, and they are saying that it is some extra work, which obviously we knew going into it. And that's why we picked the people that we did. Um, so it's really up to kind of compensating those handlers as best as you can without being able to give them some kind of bonus or at our agency, we don't get any special pay for being canine where some other agencies do. So we just have to try to improve their working conditions as much as possible um, work with them. We, they always, in my, when I was the supervisor, the, the bloodhound handlers always had a little bit of a priority over the other handlers when it came to vacation and special requests. And they took on a lot of extra work and they weren't getting any extra pay. For it. So we tried to improve their condition some, but they seem to be happy with it overall. I think they're, they're really happy with the, especially the bloodhound handlers that came over from just being bloodhound handlers they really got some career progression there and some, some more institutional knowledge as well as got a lot more sleep because they weren't getting called out every other night, a couple times a night. Um, so their attitudes, their morale, everything improved at work. And I think overall it's been a huge success. Yeah, it sounds like it. And I'm going to go back a little ways. You had said, uh, one of the words you said is you were trying to find an innovative solution you know, for the agency. And that was one of the reasons why I was excited about doing this show, particularly right now is that with, you know, the stuff going on in our profession and between, you know, the, the political part of our profession that, that is not real favorable to, to cops and especially to, you know, police dogs right now, and then budgets the way that, you know, I can only imagine budgets are going to be a mess for quite a while. I thought this would be a good show for, for you know, if you're in this position in your agency, to maybe start considering some of these types of things and think of what, what can I do to show my chief that we're still real valuable? Because, um, you know, if you watch the news, patrol dogs are, are being scrutinized at a level that I haven't seen in the 25 years I've been doing this. So, you know, if, if you have a single purpose patrol dog agency, maybe this is a good program to start kind of thinking about, do, do I want to add a second dog in? And it doesn't have to be a bloodhound. It could be, let's add in a floppy-eared bomb dog. Let's add in a dog that uh, finds, you know, guns or finds uh drugs, whatever, but just a way um, to go back to your phrase, you know, an innovative solution to, to save the agency some money and expand your capabilities. I think now more than ever, people should be looking at those types of things and, and eyeing that towards the future of, of keeping relevant and keeping, uh, you know, just making sure that we're not seen as just some 
use of force tool that uh, could fall out of favor. Right. And uh, that was some of our concerns in addition to uh, the dem canine demonstrations we have to do for the public or, or we do for the public. Uh, we, I was trying to find a way to have less patrol dogs involved in that because with that comes a lot of liability. And as you said, in today's climate, you don't need a canine unit out there that's having a bunch of accidental bites, that's not having well-trained dogs, that the dogs don't know how to behave when they're around people that they're not supposed to be aggressive towards. So uh, we tried to assign all of our demos to our non-patrol dogs, whether they be hounds or floppy or dope dogs. or um, and, and it seemed to work out. The public went berserk over this program. They loved it. It was a Facebook success. Um, just posting a whole bunch of bloodhounds on a Facebook page at one time with handlers and explaining that not only are they cute and, and they're friendly and they're great with kids, but we're saving the county about a quarter million dollars a year every year by doing this. And providing a, a you know real valuable service. So sure. I, could, I could speak from experience that from somebody, you know, I did patrol dogs for a long time and then uh, started working a bomb dog. Um, and even though I have a lot of ancillary duties of training in our agency and stuff like that, um, one bomb dog wasn't super challenging. So luckily, um, about a year and a half ago, they let me get a second dog. So I have two floppy ear dogs, but, um, for if, you know, if somebody's listening, that's kind of in that same boat, that second dog, although it's, it's just another Labrador. So that, you know, it's, uh, uh, similar to my bomb dog, but just having two dogs really, um, kind of added a lot of, uh, job satisfaction to me because one, one single floppier dog wasn't super challenging. So, um, you know, if you're, if you're an experienced handler and you're looking for a way to, to, you know, kind of up your game a little bit, that might be a way to approach your, your agency and just tell them, look, I, you know, I, I can easily handle one dog. Let's go to two and I can double my, my uh, use here. And it's been a, a real good success here for our agency. I think they're pretty happy with it. I don't know, know if it's going to expand at all, but just in my particular situation, it's worked out really well. Yeah, and I think it's a responsible thing for the canine unit supervisors that are out there to not just maintain what they currently have and what they've had for years. And this is the way we've done it. And this is the way we've, we've always done it. So this is the way we're going to continue to do it. I think it's our responsibility as handlers, as supervisors, as officers, as deputies to look for new ways to do things, to improve the processes, you know, um, whether you're on one side or the other, as far as training philosophies go, but just look for new ways to improve our canine profession and, and get better names for us out there in addition to the good names we already have. I agree. And it's a way to add tools. So, I mean, right now, you know, you, you, we've got detector dogs that obviously find bombs and uh, drugs, but, you know, they've uh, guns, currency, evidence, you name it. There's so many different, uh, different detector dogs out there. It'd be hard to list them all. Um, so look at what your agency needs because it doesn't have to be a bloodhound if you're working a patrol dog or if you have a you know one one uh, detector dog maybe there's another detector dog you can do I it, we were in uh, Holland about a year and a half ago doing a tour of all the different agencies it was fun to see their national police force uh, they have drug dogs that find you know all the you know patrol drugs bombs uh, they did arson dogs there, and then they even had a sperm detection dog, which sounded funny. Of course, the jokes were made, but but then when we watched what they did, these dogs would go out to a crime scene where there wasn't any evidence, you know, to be seen, and they'd find you know trace amounts of of uh, evidence that would 
convict people. And then they also showed us how they used them in a lab, a laboratory setting, and the dogs could detect, you know, uh, sperm on clothes and stuff that couldn't be seen under even a blue light, but the dogs would find it. So it was like something that somebody came up with, and now it's a program of several dogs strong that are putting bad dudes in jail. So there's a lot of innovative things that we can do. And, and if, you know, if, if now is not the time to do it, I can't imagine when it would be because, you know, this is the time to expand all of our capabilities, be budget minded, you know, show that, that police dogs have, have the use that we all know they do, but we need to educate our, our command, our, you know, our city councils, our, you know, county commissioners, our public, everybody needs to understand how valuable of a tool this is, you know, all the way around. And this doubled our tracking ability too per, per handler. So, what we ran into sometimes on our busy nights, like most agencies do, I'm sure we would go out and run a track. It would be 45 minutes to an hour long. We're in the state of Florida. The humidity is high. The heat is ridiculous. We put the dog back in the truck at the end of the call. We go to the next call and then we expect the dog yep. in 10 or 15 minutes to get back out and do another 45 minute to an hour long track. And that's putting the dog through fatigue. It's dangerous for the handlers. It's dangerous for our safety if the dog's not picking up on the turns or not giving us a good proximity alert because he's fatigued. So we were able to actually go run a track, no matter what the charges were, even if it was a felony crime or a violent crime, if we had to, we'd get the bloodhound out and go do that if the patrol dog was spent from the last call. So it was a really, you got a lot of unique advantages out of that. Yeah. It sounds like an outstanding program. So I appreciate you uh, taking the time kind of a, outlining everything for it and hopefully it gives everybody you know kind of some food for thought you have any uh, final thoughts as we wrap up uh no i'd just like to say that if anybody needs any help or or ha- needs any talking points or ideas i've i've got a little presentation that we put together that um we sent up to our staff and i was able to present our chain of command um if anybody's interested in that or needs any help or, or offer any advice, uh, feel free to reach out. I'll be more than happy to uh, assist them along that way in any way that I can. Okay. And I'll put your email in the show notes here. So if you want to talk to Steve, uh, it'd be a, uh, in the show notes, you can reach out to him and then I'll do a little shameless plug for hits. Obviously you mentioned it earlier and uh, hits is you've been to quite a few of them and uh, you mentioned the networking. And that's what I always try to stress is that, um, the classes are, I think, you know, we're proud of our classes, but I think it's the networking is one of the things that really, really uh, makes hits worth the money and the travel worth the money just to be able to meet all those different cops. So as Steve mentioned, if, uh, you know, if, if, if you haven't been to hits or if you've been to one and it's been a little while, hopefully plan on trying to uh, come this year. We'll be in uh, Phoenix in July of 2021. Uh, we'll be in Phoenix and uh years past we've got a thousand handlers that you can kind of network with and you get to meet people all over the country and when you start programs like this it's it's invaluable and you pick up the phone or jump on email and start uh, contacting people that you met at while you were at hits so i appreciate everything you've done for our company over the in the past steve and thanks for jumping on today and uh, stay safe out there no problem jeff thanks a lot i appreciate it If you're looking to make an investment in your canine career, come to HITS 2021. There's no substitute for the real thing. Whether you're a new handler who's looking to learn more about dog training or an experienced trainer who's looking for new training ideas and techniques, come to HITS 2021 where the investment is well worth the return. 
Hits 2021 will have more classes and more vendors who give away more free raffles and gifts and free cash than ever before. Hits is the world's largest canine seminar and is open to police officers and military members. Our experience makes the difference. You've been there and we've been there too. 